You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Good morning. This is Gary Cohn, and I welcome you to A Road to Philanthropy, a podcast production of Painted Rock Advisors. Today is our kickoff program. We look forward to inviting discussion and dialogue on all things in the charitable and philanthropic world. Thank you for joining us. In this ever-changing world we live in, both donors and volunteers need to reassess their charitable intentions and ask a few basic questions. Are the nonprofits we support still able to perform their work? What are the challenges facing the nonprofit institutions we support? How are our values holding up in this COVID environment? How should we evaluate our giving and our volunteer efforts? A Road to Philanthropy will bring together a variety of nonprofit and philanthropic leaders to discuss life during and post-COVID. Today, we have the honor of hosting Lisa Tabak. Lisa is the Director of Philanthropy for the East Bay of the Jewish Community Federation and Foundation of San Francisco. Lisa has over 20 years of experience in charitable giving. Lisa has an undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley and a graduate degree from Brandeis University. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Gary. A pleasure to be here. Honored to be one of your guests and the first. Thank you. Um, Tell us a little bit about your path, your career path from Brandeis University to your current position at the Federation Foundation and as a leader in the Jewish community. Well, I graduated from Brandeis University with a dual master's in nonprofit management from the Heller School and a Jewish communal service degree through the Hornstein program. And that was in the mid 90s. And I was really fortunate to have my graduate education paid for by a scholarship through the Federation movement. Back then it was called UJA. Uh, Today it's called JFNA, the Jewish Federations of North America. And the contract that we made was they would pay for my graduate education and therefore I would work for the Federation upon graduation. And the funny story is that I went on a lot of interviews in a lot of different communities and nothing quite felt right. I I couldn't like find my Jewish identity in those communities, whether it was Ohio or Florida or Illinois. And then one day I got a voicemail message from San Francisco Federation, and they said that they were looking for somebody to work in the young adult division or young leadership. And I was 25 at the time and just thought, well, buy me a one-way ticket I'm itching to get back home and I had had enough of the cold winters. And so I made my, my way back to San Francisco and luckily the San Francisco Federation hired me and I can really say the rest is history. Great. Recently, the East Bay Jewish Foundation, which you were the head of and the Jewish Federation of San Francisco came together in a combination. How did that come about? It was a long time coming, Gary. As everybody can imagine, uh, there were two burgeoning Jewish communities a hundred years ago uh, when there was no Bay Bridge and no BART and no internet. And today we have all those things and more. Um, The two communities are very unique. 
um, in their characteristics, and they both harken back to their beginnings. Um, we, we still see a lot of aspects of the community that are from generations ago. But the one thing that, of course, has changed is we've got a huge Jewish community in, in both places, West Bay and the East Bay. And many people work on either sides of the bay and live on either sides of the bay. And it was just getting to the point where it wasn't making sense to have two separate Jewish community federations. And through a lot of careful planning and a lot of very good leadership, bold leadership, when the timing was right, which was in 2019, to really come together and figure out how this could work, it happened. But it was done with a lot of foresight, a lot of strategic thinking, and a lot of hard work to really map out how this would come about. And so it did. And we're thrilled and really excited about the future. The two institutions before they came together had two independent boards of directors uh, and lay leaders, probably with different philosophies at times about how they approach things. How did the integration of the two cultures come together? So we had some representation in the East Bay. We had a, the board of the East Bay Federation, you know, made up of esteemed longtime leaders, people who are very caring and committed to the East Bay community. On the side of the Jewish Community Foundation, we also had an integration cohort of, of lay leaders and donors who were very committed to making the Jewish Community Foundation, which I was, as you said, um, the head of, uh, integrate seamlessly into the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund. And then on the side of the West Bay, the San Francisco-based federation, they have their board and their endowment committee. And so there were just, you know, meetings of the minds uh, throughout the pre-integration, pre-consolidation time. These folks met with each other pretty consistently. And whenever there were issues, they were discussed and there was transparency. And we were thrilled that we were able to work everything out. And on July of 2019, really be able to say that we were one organization. It's very interesting from my perspective, because I worked in the Jewish community in San Francisco for close to 30 years, but I lived in the Oakland Hills in the East Bay for 30 years. And at that time, my gifts were going to the San Francisco Federation. So it's very interesting to see the whole thing come together. And it's, it's very exciting, I think, for the community. Very exciting. And you're, you were not alone. A lot of folks who got their either residential start or career start in San Francisco might have been connected to the San Francisco-based federation, moved to the East Bay. We did a demographic study and there were so many, especially families with young children moving to the East Bay, moving to Contra Costa, moving to Tri-Valley. And I'm sure they were still giving to the San Francisco Federation. So, you know, when this, when this collaboration and this integration happened, it was almost you know, just a wonderful coming together of donors being able to give to one entity. When you look at the last few months, obviously the last nine months since March when COVID began to impact the community, have your priorities changed at all over the last nine months or so? I mean, clearly whatever was on the docket, in fact, we were, this is a good segue, just in January and February, uh, our, our federation was engaged in a marketing and website and name change 
Uh, we, we had hired a firm to do a complete inventory and analysis of what we do. And we had just kind of finished up a strategic plan. And so the, a name change was in order. So we didn't have to add on Alameda County, Contra Costa County, and Tri-Valley to an already really long name, Marin, San Francisco, and, and the peninsula. And so we were engaged with a firm on a rebranding strategy. And that just stopped. Once COVID-19 hit, we went right into crisis and needs assessment and focused on how can we be there for our community. When you look at uh, funding priorities for your donors, as opposed to the federation funding, have your donors' interests changed over the last few months, or are they about the same as they always were? I think our donors have really stepped up. We have raised millions of dollars to help our organizations deal with this COVID-19 crisis. I mentioned the needs assessment, and then we went right into making grants. Our first priority was to address human service needs, and we gave over a million dollars to 32 organizations that were you know, on the front lines providing essential safety net services for the community, whether it was food delivery, job resources, mental health support, and direct financial assistance. Um, so that was priority number one. And we're, we're still, we still have an active COVID response fund that people are giving to, and we are still in rounds of successive grant making. Um, the first was just emergency help, and now we're into sustainability. And I'm, I'm you know, so thankful and feel so fortunate that are coming together of, of the two federations happened before COVID. I really feel like our East Bay has, has benefited tremendously from the coming together, especially in these times of, of emergency of pandemic support. When you look at foundation giving or grant, uh, the granting of, of, of gifts from the foundation out to institutions, you have your own basic unrestricted funds to fund but you also have donor advised funds. How do those compare with each other and how do the priorities get ascertained or or determined by your donors? So the unrestricted annual campaign, as well as our unrestricted endowment, really are helping to stabilize the, the Jewish ecosystem. They're really helping all of the bread and butter of our Jewish community exist and thrive. And so we ask, even if you have a multi-million dollar donor advised fund or family foundation that you at least give something to our annual campaign so that we can provide for these what I call basic needs. You know, what's wonderful about the donor advised fund program is the more we get to know our donors and steward them and understand what their interests are, then they can make a deeper impact with their dollars to something that they deeply care about. And that ranges from cradle to the grave. I mean, just every kind of interest and niche focus that you can imagine. When advising donors and discussing their interests, how do you ascertain and and assess what their real interests are or help direct them into other areas they may not be thinking about? I just really listen. um, And I just really let them tell me what's going on in their life, what makes them happy, what makes them smile, how the community has helped their family, what crises they're dealing with in their life, um, what crises make them kind of 
cry out, um, make their make their heart go out. You know, it doesn't even take a lot of prodding. It really just is a listening. Uh, you know, the whole God gave you two ears and one mouth. So I really try to use those ears to listen to what the interests are of the donors. And, and I do a lot of matchmaking. I really try to tell donors about something that they may not know of once I hear that there's a potential interest. Our federation is developing a whole impact investing arena um, for donors who want to make a difference with um, marginalized communities um, and organizations, help organizations that are either inside the Jewish community or outside the Jewish community struggling to, you know, get loans to do really amazing things. And so this is something that, you know, has just opened up the doors in terms of uh, allowing donors who might have had larger funds that were dormant, that really weren't grant making on a regular basis to actually give to an impact investing focus that is going to then kind of have a domino effect. In the last few years, a lot of talk has centered around impact investing. Can you define that for our audience? Impact investing is really about using your values when you are making a grant. It's That's the basic definition. Some people call it using screens or instead of investing with a diverse portfolio, really focusing those dollars on in, in a value-based way. You know, the sky's the limit. There are lots of different organizations out there that are putting together packages so that folks with donor-advised funds and family foundations can invest their dollars in this unique way. When you look at your federation, I mean, your federation, your donors uh, giving, through the foundation, what percentage of the funding goes to Jewish causes as opposed to broader community causes? Is there a, a breakdown you can talk about? You know, in the East Bay, before we consolidated, it was about 70% Jewish, 30% secular. Uh, in San Francisco, it tended to be more like 50% Jewish or 40% Jewish and 60% secular. So I would say just to round off, it, it's probably around 50-50. That's very interesting. The yeah. other thing that's interesting in today's world is that uh, obviously there's a lot of needs out there from food insecurity, uh, people have lost their jobs, obviously the homelessness issue going on. But there's also the arts organizations uh, that are really struggling now that they don't have live performances. They're, they seem to be struggling for money. How do you, you differentiate between the needs of people versus the art world and, and what they desire? That's the old listening technique, Gary. I mean, you know, a lot of people are patrons of the arts, you know, enjoy being stimulated and entertained through the arts. But when it comes down to their philanthropy, they're not exactly supportive in a robust way because they say, well, I'd rather make sure that someone isn't living on the street or living out of their car and would rather give to human and health services. I think it's, it's a struggle for arts organizations, especially in this time when we're in a pandemic, the economy is, has taken a huge hit. And also, you know, some of these other issues like the fires and, and today's a fateful day. It's, it's November 3rd. So, so many unknowns, so much uncertainty. I think the arts organizations really have to make a case for 
mental health and how they're there to provide people the opportunity to grasp a little bit of sanity and a little bit of grounding through the arts. And so, uh, you know, certainly try to make that case to donors when they're kind of debating whether arts organizations should receive the robust kind of support that some of the other social and, and human service organizations do. Um, and I feel for them. And I think it's a very competitive environment for arts organizations, especially given today's circumstances. It's a very interesting uh, answer you gave because someone down here recently, I'm in LA, as most people know, and someone down here said that there, that during this pandemic time when we're all somewhat restricted in seeing people and no hugging, no kissing, no family gatherings that are very large, to give yourself an hour a day to enjoy reading a book or listening to music or going out in nature, which helps that mental health side of things. It's very important, I think, for people. Very and amen. And, and that's one thing I think that the, the current environment has forced us to do. And it's like we're rediscovering things that we were too busy before the pandemic to do. It's a little bit of a silver lining. Let me ask you another question in the foundation world. In the Bay Area, you have the East Bay Community Foundation, and you also have the San Francisco Foundation, which are community foundations. And in a way, the Jewish Foundation, Federation Foundation works in, in that way also. Uh, working with donors. How do you differ from community foundations? Uh, we all do the same thing. And we're all out there talking to people about opening funds with us. You know, our fees may differ slightly, but I think one of the things that the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund has is that we are a Jewish community. And when you open a fund and when you become part of our endowment fund family, you are saying that you are giving with your community. And that goes a long way. Even if you are part of that group that gives more to secular organizations or gives exclusively to secular organization, that secular organization gets a check that says that you have your money with the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund. And that speaks volumes. That says that you are aligned with your community and that you, you know, that your Jewish community speaks for you and, and what you believe in and what values guide you in your giving and, and in your life um, and how you're raising your family. So that's the difference to me is that we are the premier Jewish lens, but you can give to any cause because as we know, um, tikkun olam, is a universal value. Uh, repairing, it's a Jewish value, but it, it extends universally. And taking care of our world and fixing our world is something that is so important to us as a Jewish community and as Jews. Is there two or three things you could say that are the most fun things that you're able to do in the Federation Foundation world? Uh, well, one of the things that is truly just a privilege is, is to be able to toggle and help so many people with different passions and different interests and different visions. Um, and I like that kind of diversity. Speaking of diversity, one of the things that we're really working on is enlarging our leadership base and enlarging our, our programs to really get more Jews of color involved, 
and get our tent even even larger than it already is and making people feel not just welcome, but make them feel like they belong. And that's exciting because it's cutting edge stuff. Our, our Jewish community and our world is changing so rapidly. And for us to be able to respond in this way is also just fun and exciting and provides the wind beneath the wings. I'd say the other me, thing uh, that's fun is yeah. is just great colleagues and great mentors and and just feeling supported. Let me head in one last direction as we we wrap up our conversation. Traditionally, the Bay Area Jewish community has been very structured and established for many, many, many years. And now there's an influx of young entrepreneurs and high tech individuals uh, looking to make a difference in the world. Also, how does the old style donor and some of the younger donors coming up differ, and how are they the same? Great question, Gary. I would say that you know it's it's a it's a familiar scenario. The boardroom has you know certainly the over fifty set, and many of them have been involved for a long time, but they are really committed and want to pass that baton, and so there are some really wonderful new ways and programs that we are, you know, reaching this uh, younger entrepreneurial high-tech cohort and engaging with them. I mentioned mentor in my my last answer, and I think mentorship is the key to really one-on-one bringing in a younger person and engaging with them on why the community is important, what their impact could be, and how they can really step up and make change happen. And that older, more established donor would be glad to step aside and allow somebody to come in um, who's got great you know, new ideas and wants to make a difference. So that is happening. I wouldn't say it's happening on a large scale, but it's happening on a small scale. And you know what they say, little by little, and you eventually get there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. I think our listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. This was a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We will be on again a month from now, and we look forward to our our coming guests. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram, at Painted Rock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.